Hello, I'm Jeff Carls, Executive Director of the Institute on Religious Life, and this is the Institute's podcast series called Ever Ancient, Ever New. I am so excited to share a fantastic talk today by Father Thomas Nelson from our 2021 national meeting titled The Crisis in the Church. Father Thomas Nelson is a Norbertine priest of St. Michael's Abbey in Silverado, California, a community of Norbertine canons, and serves as the Institute on Religious Life's national director. He has a licentiate in sacred theology from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum, in Rome. I have been very blessed to be able to work with Father Nelson, myself as the executive director of the Institute on Religious Life, and him as the national director, to coordinate national meetings and regional meetings and the Vita Consecrata Institute, which he does so beautifully. He's just gifted in his sense of being able to provide spiritual direction or direction for communities when they're in need of good guidance, if they're in transition, if they're having internal struggles or difficulties. Father Thomas is just blessed to be able to assist and direct and give guidance where needed. He's so humble about it. He doesn't take credit for any of it. He, you know, he knows that he's just an instrument between these religious communities who need assistance and God, basically. And so we here at the Institute on Religious Life are deeply grateful for Father Nelson's contribution over the many years that he has served us as the National Director for the Institute on Religious Life. So today we are overjoyed to be able to share these talks and interviews with you from these religious men and women who truly are some of the greatest treasures of the church. May God bless you and enjoy. I'll be speaking about a church in crisis. Now, we have been reflecting morning on the glorified church, the church triumphant, in particularly the person of St. Joseph, also Our Lady and Our Lord. But we are still pilgrims in this, on this earth, and uh, we're part of the church militant, which means that we're fighting. And um, we're losing a lot of battles. We know that we're going to win the war, but... There's a lot that we're losing. And so the church, um, we can speak about it. She's in crisis. Ralph Martin wrote a book with that title and kind of inspired me for this talk. I wanted him to address you, but that was not possible. But I highly recommend the book. Okay? Now, my talk is inspired by that book, but it's not a presentation of the book. That would not be fair to the book. But I did get a few points from it. So I'm speaking about the church today in crisis, because throughout her history, the church has been through many crises, and she has successfully navigated through them and has not only survived, but has become richer and stronger. That is because of the promise of Christ that the gates of hell will not prevail against her, and also the prayer of Christ for Peter. Peter the devil wishes to shift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Now, many things indicate a crisis in the church, but perhaps the clearest sign is the attack on the priesthood and marriage. The two sacraments instituted by Christ, which are vocations in life, that are meant to care for the church, to bring forth new members. And when I speak about 
priesthood, we can extend that to all forms of consecrated life. Everywhere you turn, there's an attack on the priesthood. Sometimes, you know, something I think at times we have brought upon ourselves, uh, in the sense that many of the clergy have not cared for the flock, but have abused the flock, serious abuse, of sexual abuse. Now, we know this is a small minority, but it has undermined the credibility of the church. And then there are bishops who, um, perhaps with, with goodwill, have covered up such abuse. It's not something we want to make public. And this, too, has rocked the church. And I think we're just beginning, maybe, to come out of it. And over above the sexual abuse, there is the spiritual abuse from priests, uh, teaching false doctrine, or silencing the full proclamation of the gospel, to liturgical abuses. So the return and renewal of the clergy, the reform and the renewal of the clergy, is paramount to really answering this crisis. Then there is the attack upon marriage, the great sacrament that symbolizes and communicates Christ's love for the church and God's love for his people. The fruit of marriage is children brought up in holy families, the domestic church, where they learn to pray and worship God, to love one another. They learn obedience to authority and service to those in need. The mystery of the church is passed down from generation to generation through family and holy matrimony. But what do we see? The family is attacked. Marriages are broken. Half of all marriages in the United States are fractured through divorce. Then possible children are contracepted, and unwanted pregnancies are aborted. And this is legal. It's held up by many as a cultural value. And it has even gotten to the point of redefining marriage to include people of the same sex where children are not even possible. And last of all, um, you're persecuted if you oppose such aberrations. And so we are in a crisis. Now, what is at the basis of this crisis? Well, Ralph Martin in his book brings out certain points which are, you might say, at the foundation of the crisis. One of them is doctrinal, another is a moral, and the other we might say is kind of philosophical. So I'm just going to present you with a couple of thoughts on this. First, the doctrinal error. He, he calls it the fog of universalism. Namely, everybody is saved and nobody goes to hell. Now, we know through God's revelation that he wills the salvation of all men and women, that they come to a knowledge of the truth. And in order to bring about the salvation of all, God became a man. The Father gave us his only son, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered and, and died in, on the cross, and he conquered sin and death, as his glorious resurrection testifies. Now, we call that the object of redemption, and it's universal. It, it manifests God's will. He wants everybody to be saved. And look what he did to save us, put himself into it. So all men are redeemed by the blood of Christ. The gates of heaven have been opened at the resurrection. It's God's will. But that's not enough to be saved. 
the mystery of redemption has to be applied to individual souls. Therefore, Jesus established a church precisely to communicate the mystery of redemption to individuals through evangelization and sacramental worship. So before his ascension into heaven, he had completed the work of the objective redemption. He commissioned his apostles to go out to all nations to proclaim the gospel and to baptize so that those who believe may be saved and unfortunately those who do not believe are lost. Individuals have to respond to the proclamation of the gospel through repentance and faith. The first precept given by our Lord as he began his public ministry, repent and believe in the gospel. So you must repent of your sins, you must live God's commandments, place your faith in Jesus Christ, for there's no other name under heaven through which a man can be saved. Those are the two conditions for being saved, personally, individually, subjectively. Repentance of sin and living of the commandments, and a living faith in Jesus Christ, which includes baptism into the mystery of his body, the church. And if you lack any one of those conditions, you're lost, and it's eternal. You're in the home of the demons. And it is possible to be lost. Jesus said, the road to life is narrow and few find it, but the road to death is wide and many are on it. This is clear gospel teaching. Souls can be lost because they neither repent of their sins and walk the narrow way of the commandments, or they don't believe in Jesus Christ, the one savior of the world. That's why the church is on mission. That's why there is a church. To apply the fruits of the redemption of Christ one on Calvary to individuals. So we can encounter Christ and be saved. Now the question arises, what about those who have not heard the gospel message? Or it has not been adequately presented to them through a clear and powerful Christian witness of the gospel? Well, the church teaches that the shadow of the cross touches all men. The objective redemption has been accomplished for all. The Holy Spirit, like a cloud, overshadows every individual, Jew and the pagan, Hindu and Muslim, animist, and even atheist. So the grace of salvation can be communicated to them if they observe the natural moral law according to their conscience, in other words, they repent of a sinful life, and they sincerely seek religious truth. And in that seeking, they're really seeking after crisis, we call that a baptism of desire. And of course, this presupposes they are invincibly ignorant of Christ, which means they're not responsible for their ignorance. The church in her document, Lumen Gentium at Vatican II, teaches that such non-Christians may be saved. Maybe. She does not teach they are saved. So Lumen Gentium number 16 speaks about the salvation of non-Christians and says that they may be saved, but, quote, very often deceived by the evil one, men have become vain in their reasonings, have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. 
to serve the world rather than the creator. Notice what it says very often. It doesn't say seldom deceived by the evil one. It doesn't say often deceived by the evil one. But very often deceived by the evil one, men have become vain in their reasoning, have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and serve the world rather than the creator. Now that implies the loss of a, a great multitude. So why are a great multitude lost? Because without access to divine revelation, they don't have enough light to see through the deceptions of the evil one. Therefore, they no longer seek God in his truth, but they follow the lie of the devil, the father of all lies, and they serve the world. That is, they put their heart and soul in creatures instead of God and therefore are eternally lost. Now, what is the church's response to this, to the fact that many may be lost due to the deception of the evil one? Well, the council teaches, quote, hence, to procure the glory of God and the salvation of all these, the church, mindful of the Lord's command, preaches the gospel to every creature, takes zealous care to foster the missions so we have a missionary mandate to proclaim the gospel so that they can be saved. Now, this is the teaching of the Ecumenical Council, Vatican II. And these documents are meant to guide us and provide a blueprint for the church in the third millennium, according to Pope John Paul II. Now, that statement of Lumen Gentium 16 was referring to those outside of the church who are invincibly ignorant they do not know Christ, they're not responsible for their ignorance. Those inside the church, the baptized, are not so easily deceived by the evil one because they have the light of faith, they have the teachings of the church, they have the life-giving power of the sacraments to overcome the forces of the evil one. But those outside of the church don't have the spiritual armor St. Paul speaks about in his letter to the Ephesians the shield of faith, the helmet of hope, the breastplate of charity to put out the fiery darts of the evil one, and the sword of God's word to conquer him. So our salvation as baptized in the Catholic Church is secure if we live the Catholic faith, if we embrace the means of salvation. But those outside of the church, especially non-Christians, salvation is very difficult. We can see it even within the church, how many people are deceived by the evil. We'll get into that later. Because this is very often deceived by the evil one. Man exchanges the truth of God for a lie and serve the world rather than the creator. Now, this teaching of the Second Vatican Council was universally accepted by the Catholic faithful until recently. Cardinal Avery Dulles wrote a paper on this, and he said that with, with the exception of um, Origen, who taught universal salvation, his teaching was never really challenged until the 1950s when certain theologians introduced the idea of universal salvation, that no one is lost. Well, the council, aware of this error, reaffirmed the traditional teaching that many may be lost through the deception of the devil and their own free choices to follow the lie. 
Nevertheless, this, this error of universal salvation has spread to many of the faithful, including priests and bishops. It has really real consequences as well. I remember, I was just a young priest then, I was attending a funeral of a young man who committed suicide. He was a surfer on the beaches of California, and he drove his car up on the beach, and he channeled the exhaust pipes into the automobile, and he died of the gas fumes. And the priest at the, uh, at the homily did not mention the moral disorder surrounding his death and the need to pray for him, but rather said that he was in heaven. And he had such uh, a beautiful transition to heaven on the beach of which he loved so much. There was an elderly lady in the congregation who I knew, um, because I was giving her counsel, who was herself suicidal. And she was next to me saying over and over again, oh, how beautiful, how beautiful. Well, I didn't pick up on it, but a week later, she commits suicide in order to put an end to her depression and to enter into the eternal peace of heaven. Now, I'm not going to judge her, but you talk about deceived by the evil one. I mean, God's not the author of death. He's not the author of suicide. The devil is. He's the murderer from the beginning. He lusts for human blood. And I have also counseled many with depression, and they tell me that the greatest detriment they have for committing suicide is the fear of hell. Now, no doubt, many, probably most suicides are not fully culpable, but it's still a disordered act displeasing to God and their loved ones. I simply bring this story up to show you that this error of universal salvation has practical consequences. Another such consequence is that it takes the wind out of the sails of evangelization. Why evangelize when people's souls are already saved? Why even establish a church with a missionary mandate if it's not necessary? Now, what is heaven's response to this? Well, Our Lady at Fatima, she confirms the teaching on the existence of hell and the loss of many souls. January 13, 1917, the children had a vision of hell, and they saw many souls there. And Our Lady said, this is where poor sinners go because they have no one to pray for them and to make sacrifices for them. Oh, the importance, huh, of those two weapons, prayer, sacrifice. Sister Lucio said that they were falling into hell like snowflakes. When asked, do more go to hell than heaven, she answered, well, I don't know. I, I didn't see a vision of souls going to heaven, but souls are going to hell. Now, St. Faustina, a secretary of divine mercy, was taken to hell by the Lord himself to, with the instruction that she was to teach people not to presume upon divine mercy. Divine mercy calls us, it's a grace, to repent. You have to repent of your sins to receive divine mercy and therefore to be brought into heaven. So the fog of universalism is an error that is at the foundation of the present crisis in the church. A second source of confusion in the church is a moral crisis, namely our response to or our lack of response to the sexual revolution that hit society in the 1960s. Previous to 1960, traditional marriage 
was accepted by everybody because it was a cultural expectation. Marriage was between a man and a woman for the sake of having children. A sign of this was the baby boomer generation of large families after the Second World War. Sexual activity outside of marriage was frowned upon, and birth control was illegal. Most Christian churches condemned it as a sin. It was easier to see it as sinful and harmful to marriage because the only form of birth control in those days was mechanical devices, which kind of interrupted the natural experience of marital intimacy. Then the birth control pill was invented in 1960. You simply take a pill like an aspirin, which regulates the menstrual period of the woman, so as to prevent conception. So marital intimacy seemed natural. Well, is birth control pill wrong? Is it unnatural? Well, Pope John XXIII set up a commission to study the question with medical doctors and theologians. And Pope Paul VI enlarged the commission. And the majority on the commission advised and said that it was natural and moral. Well, Pope Paul VI hesitated to respond authoritatively even after the commission's conclusions leaked out. So people were thinking that the church would approve of the pill as an actual method of birth regulation. Then Pope Paul VI wrote his now famous landmark encyclical Humanae Vitae, condemning it as artificial and therefore immoral. And there was widespread dissension among theologians, priests, and even bishops. So the sexual revolution already in society entered into the church, and contraception spread among the faithful. Many priests dissented from the teaching. Many simply remained silent and did not vigorously proclaim the teaching of the church. And the few who did were often persecuted. Pope Paul VI warned us of the fruits of the sexual revolution if the teaching on humani vitae was ignored. He said first would be abortion. And um, he said that would ultimately be the way of regulating birth, the ultimate means, you might say. And we know in the United States, abortion was legalized four years later. Second fruit of that would be, he said, divorces would increase because he argued that contraception doesn't only frustrate the procreative end of marriage, but also the unitive end of marriage. It poisons the marriage. And so divorces skyrocket. Then third, he said that it would lead to homosexuality. If human sexuality is not ordered to having babies and is only an erotic expression of love, then why not between people of the same sex if they have erotic feelings towards each other? And this is what has happened. And that leads, of course, to a serious gender identity issues and people changing their sex surgically. And then what is worse, what has happened, is this aberrant sexual behavior has been publicly legitimized in law, and it's become unacceptable to oppose it. That you may get in trouble if you proclaim the gospel teaching openly and vigorously from the pulpit. And so the church has been silent. Added to that, the clergy sex scandal, so our credibility has been weakened. So not only are non-Christians salvation threatened now, but the Christian's faithful. I mean, what's the price for this silence? Why speak out? Why does the enemy, the devil, want to silence the church in this area of marriage and human sexuality? Because souls are at stake. 
St. Paul is very clear. Fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is grave matter. There's not one but two commandments, the sixth and ninth, that forbid sexual deviations. And our Lord even goes so far as to tell us to clean up our fantasies. That is, if you look lustfully at another person with consent of the will. Now, for those who believe that nobody's ever lost, that everybody goes to heaven, I guess it's not so serious. But that is a deception of the evil. Scriptures, the church, are very clear in this matter. A person's eternal salvation is in jeopardy if they live a sexually immoral life. And that is confirmed by heaven. Our Lady at Fatima told St. Jacinta, more souls go to hell for sins of the flesh than any other sin. Not because they are the worst sins, murder is worse, but because they are so easy to fall into and become entrapped. Lust is a capital sin, meaning that it leads to other sins, and one of its daughters is spiritual blindness. In other words, if you don't put up a fight against the sin, Eventually, you'll justify your sin, and your conscience will be dark. The light of Christ will leave your soul, and the Luciferian light will enter, and eventually you'll lose your faith. Impurity has led many out of the church, or if they remain in the church, they stop practicing the faith. And we know church attendance has been dropping over the years, largely due to the sexual revolution which has entered the church, the domestic church of the family, and even the clergy. And the many who still practice the faith, I mean, they go to Mass, studies have been indicated that they don't believe in the real presence. Well, why? Why this blindness? Because impurity blinds the conscience. Now, underneath these two errors, the dogmatic error of universal salvation and the moral error surrounding sexual ethics, it's a various insidious error Pope Benedict called the dictatorship of relativism. Basically, it is the denial of objective truth, be it moral truth or dogmatic truth. It is to live in pure subjectivity without any reference to objective evidence or moral norms. Relativism teaches that the individual creates his own truth, which may be different from another man's truth. So I determine what is right and wrong. Not the priest, not the church, not scripture, not even God. It is to fall into the Luciferian lie that the ego is the center of the universe and determines what is right and wrong and not God. It's demonic, and many fall into it. Well, some may not fall completely into it, but it influences how they think and how they approach other people on these moral issues. For example, I know a couple, daughter is involved in a homosexual lesbian relationship. Well, the couple's not happy about it. They wish it were otherwise. They say, well, well Father, who am, who am I to judge? They're happy. They're, they're following what they think is right. Who am I to judge? Well, I answer, well, you are her parents. You have the power to reason and know the truth. And this is objectively sinful behavior is an evil and it is going to corrode your daughter's own humanity. Objectively speaking, they are abusing each other and unless it is corrected, it is going to lead to deep psychological wounds. Yes, it's true. I can't judge them before God. 
Only God sees their conscience. I can't judge that, but I can judge the objective nature of the behavior. I can't see their subjective guilt, what's between them and God, but the objective nature of the act and behavior, I can judge and I must judge so that I can help these people get out of their disordered behavior, which undermines their own humanity and harms others whom they are abusing. Another example, very common, was contraception. No doubt many people use contraception and are not morally culpable. They are ignorant of its sinfulness. They were never properly catechized. And so they introduced it into their marriage, this disordered way of treating each other. And when that enters into a marriage, well, they may not be guilty before God, but still a poison has entered into their marriage to destroy it. That's the objective nature of, of, of a sin. So they may go months, even years, and not know why their marriage is falling apart because they don't see the seeds of disunity in the contraceptive act. Therefore, it would be wrong for us to leave them in their error. They may not be guilty before God, but it's still harming their marriage. We must enlighten their conscience so they can throw off that disordered, harmful practice and live in the truth and not live in a lie. Now, many in the church are falling into this deception that the objective truth doesn't really matter that much. As long as people are following their conscience and are subjectively innocent, they are okay. Whether their conscience is the correct conscience rooted in the truth or an erroneous conscience rooted in a lie. As long as they follow their conscience, no, your conscience won't set you free. The truth will set you free. The human person develops and flourishes in the truth not in error or disordered behaviors contrary to the objective truth of human nature, even if they are subjectively innocent before God. So from this, you can see why the church is in such a crisis. First, many in the church, including bishops and priests, don't see the urgent call to evangelize. The gospel is optional. It's only one way to salvation. There are other ways. They all lead to salvation because really no one's lost. Second, the sexual revolution has undermined not only marriage, the only place sexual activity is permitted, but also the celibate priesthood and religious life. Marriage, priesthood, religious life, essential for the life of the church, but it has been attacked, and now it's been left wounded. And third, the dictatorship of relativism, which teaches there is no objective truth, or if there is, it's not that important. What is important is one's subjective state. What one feels about it, it doesn't really matter if you are living and walking in the truth. Now, these are errors and sins which deeply touch human nature and they undermine the gospel. And they are so prevalent and universal that I don't see a human solution or a pastoral program to adequately deal with it. But deal with it, we must. The question is, how do we respond to this? priest, religious lady. Well, the answer is found in the gospel. God has revealed to us the truth that sets us free, free from the lies of the devil, from the errors of men. And he has also given us himself and his own life, communicated to us through the holy sacraments. He has given us a church to guide us. We think of the church militant here on earth which guides us through our bishops, our priests, other leaders, but often in times of crisis, the hierarchy are, are not always clear. Their leadership is not always strong. 
But God doesn't abandon us. There's the church triumphant. So God sometimes uses extraordinary ways. Historically, you can see when the Christian faithful lose confidence in church leadership, instinctively they turn to heaven, often in forms of private revelation, which can be dangerous, unless it is private revelations accepted by the church. For example, in the 19th century, we have the dream of St. John Bosco, very symbolic, but full of meaning. He saw a ship, a symbol of the church, being guided by the Pope, and he was steering it through two pillars. On one pillar was the monstrance with the Blessed Sacrament. On the other was the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, what is the meaning of this dream? Well, in turbulent times where everything is questioned and we don't know where to turn, like the times we are living today, there are three things that we must firmly hold on to. Namely, Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, Mary, God's mother and our mother, and lastly, the church. Don't look to human beings, not even the clergy. They're mortal, they're human, they can fall and they have fallen and they can misguide. But the church will persevere because the church includes the church triumphant and the risen Lord is the head of the church. He's guiding us from heaven and he's still with us in the blessed sacrament. Mary is still with us. She's still mothering the church and she's trying to reach us through her rosary. Now that dream happened during the reign of blessed Pope Pius IX. Turbulent time in the life of the church when the papal states were being taken away from the Pope. And with that great loss, somebody mentioned to the Pope, obviously to encourage him, says, Holy Father, you need not worry, because the ship of the church is unsinkable. And the wise Pope said, but that doesn't mean its crew is not in mutiny. Many of the faithful are in mutiny, huh? They're dissenting from church teaching. The clergy often fail us. Bishops can let us down. Even the Pope can falter. But the church is indestructible because she is Christ's mystical body, nourished on his Eucharistic body. Mary is her mother who guides the church from heaven as the star of the sea. That is what our hope rests upon. Jesus, Mary, and the church. It doesn't rest upon a political party or ecclesiastical politics or anything human. It rests upon divine mysteries, the presence of Jesus in the Eucharist and Mary working through her rosary and the church celebrating her sacraments. The next pope, Pope Leo XIII, had apocalyptic vision one day after celebrating Mass. He heard Satan addressing God, telling him that he will destroy the church. Well, God reiterated his promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And to prove it, God told Satan that he will permit him tempt and try the church for a hundred years, like he permitted him to tempt Holy Job, who remained faithful to the end. Pope Leo was so shaken by that vision that he wrote a prayer to St. Michael the Archangel and ordered that it be recited after every Mass. We are familiar with that prayer. It teaches us that in these apocalyptic times of ours, where demonic activity is heightened, we need a renewed devotion to St. Michael and all the holy angels. The holy angels are our friends, our guardians. They freed Peter, the first pope, when he was in prison for the faith, as we read in the Acts of the Apostles. And they have always been there to protect the church. 
but we need to turn to them in these troubled times and consciously foster a devotion to them. They will bolster up our hope because they are the angels of Jesus and Mary. They too are members of the church, the church triumphant in heaven, but they are sent to help us, the church militant on earth, with heavenly aid. In the 20th century, we have had the apocalyptic vision of Fatima, where Our Lady came to warn us of the evils of war, political systems, namely communism, and the ultimate evil of hell. And she was clear that these evils, war, political oppression, which we are beginning to experience now in this country, and hell, come to us because of sin. And the remedy for these evils is conversion, prayer, and penance, especially in the form of the rosary and holy communion and devotion to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And complementing Fatima is the revelations given to St. Mary Faustina about divine mercy, God's greatest attribute. We are still living in a time of mercy. God said to St. Faustina, my daughter, speak to priests about this inconceivable mercy of mine. The flames of mercy are burning in me, clamoring to be spent. I want to pour them out upon souls. Souls just don't want to believe in my goodness. So divine mercy is the great remedy for the evils of our age. But that mercy calls us to conversion in faith and prayer and penance. So as you can see, heaven is open in guiding us. We, the church militant on earth, we're one church. We need to open up and gaze upon the risen, glorified Lord and listen to him, to fix our gaze upon him and his angels and his saints. Heaven does not give us human solutions to our miseries. It doesn't give us the answer to the crisis in the church. We are expected to figure this out ourselves, and we will if we repent and believe in the gospel, if we pray and lift up our eyes towards heaven and do penance. There's reason to hope. First, Christ is already victorious. He is risen. He has conquered sin, death, and Satan, and he's at intercession at the right hand of the Father for us, sending forth his spirit. All we need to do is to rely on him and respond to his message, repent and believe in the gospel. The book of Exodus tells us, I picked this up when I was during our Advent liturgy, it really hit me when the Lord said, I, Yahweh, will fight your battles. You need only to remain still, to remain still. It means the stillness of contemplation, to remain still in Christ, centered on Christ, well, he is with us in the Blessed Sacrament. Adoration chapels are, are expanding. More and more people are discovering how to be still before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament and let him fight their battles. We can only do this with heavenly aid. Also, Our Lady is building up her army of warriors, a hidden army known only to her, but they are connected to one another unknowingly through the beads of the rosary. And lastly, we have St. Joseph patron of the universal church, the terror of demons. He will protect us like he protected Jesus and Mary. So heaven is here to help us. And so we pray in the second preface of the Easter season, in him the children of light rise to eternal life, and the halls of the heavenly kingdom are thrown open to the faithful. 
It's a beautiful image, huh? The halls of the heavenly kingdom are thrown open to the faithful. Jesus, Mary, Joseph, the angels, the saints are with us in this time of crisis. We just need to fellowship with them, encounter them in prayer, in liturgy, renew our faith, our devotion to them, because with Christ, as we pray in the preface, for his death is our ransom from death, and in his rising, the life of all has risen. Mary conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. I hope that this podcast has inspired you and that you will pray along with me for an increase in vocations to the priesthood and religious life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O God, throughout the ages, you have called women and men to pursue lives of perfect charity through the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience. We give you thanks for these courageous witnesses of faith and models of inspiration. Their pursuit of holy lives teaches us to make a more perfect offering of ourselves to you. Continue to enrich your church by calling forth sons and daughters who, having found the pearl of great price, treasure the kingdom of heaven above all things. Amen. Thank you and God bless.